Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Anthropic. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high volume, high speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Small and medium businesses need happy customers. That's why FedEx offers picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Hey, podcast listeners, today, an episode from our archives called Aziz Ansari Needs Another Toothbrush. It's an interview with the actor and comedian we talked shortly after he published a book called Modern Romance and shortly before the release of his excellent Netflix series, Master of None. In fact, as you'll hear, that show didn't even have its title yet. Hope you enjoy listening to Ansari as much as I enjoyed talking to him. I read the internet so much, I feel like I'm, like, on page a million of the worst book ever. Aziz Ansari is a comedian, an actor, and now an author. Today, he answers our frequently asked questions, for instance. Hey, what do you collect, if anything, and why? At a certain point, I start buying some older cameras. You get cooler pictures, and it's kind of fun to drop off the roll of film, and then you see the photos. You are such an old man. And if you come up to Ansari on the street, he'd rather not take a picture with you. So you can either do that or you can have this like real moment with a person where you say, hey, how are you? Like, what's your name? Like, thanks for watching my stuff. That feels like a real thing to me. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to do that. What else is he happy to do? How does he spend a typical day? And what the hell is he going to call his new TV show? He needs your help with that one. WNYC Studios, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Aziz Ansari is best known for his role on Parks and Recreation, the sitcom starring Amy Poehler that ran on NBC for seven seasons. It was never a huge hit, but it was beloved, in part because it was smart, but also, at least this is what I think, and this is why I liked it so much, because the show was, at its core, sweet. Ansari played Tom Haverford, probably the most selfish and hustly character on the show, and yet he, too, was pretty sweet deep down. And after listening to this interview, I'll be surprised if you don't think the same thing about Ansari himself. He grew up in Bennettsville, South Carolina, to parents who immigrated from India. His dad worked as a gastroenterologist, and his mom worked in his dad's office. 
Aziz says his parents have been happily married for 35 years. After high school, Aziz came to New York, studied marketing at NYU, but he got into stand-up comedy and, now he stayed in it. He's been a comedian and an actor for 15 years now. And he just published his first book, a nonfiction book with an NYU sociologist, Eric Kleinenberg, as a co-author. It's called Modern Romance, and it debuted at number two on the Times bestseller list. It's about how people meet and mate in the modern world and how that is different from the past. So I'm curious why you wanted to write a book, especially, you know, a real book with real research and real paragraphs and real ideas, um, and, and it's good. And, I mean, I guess I'm thinking if I could do what you do, I don't know if I'd want to waste my time writing books. Well, I would say my thought process was this. Um, I'd been offered book deals in the past, and usually for a comedian, a, a book deal is kind of a cash grab. You basically just write down a version of your act as a book, and I didn't want to do that, and I didn't want to do another kind of book where it'd be like new essays because I felt like I would rather just do stand-up with those ideas but I had this uh, material that was about kind of dating and romance, and I'd met a few academics. One person in particular, Sherry Turkle, I met. She does a lot of stuff about uh, just communication and technology, so she came to a show in L.A., and then the next day we spent a lot of time together talking about uh, the show and, and how her research kind of related to some of the things I was talking about, just how texting had changed so many things about courtship and that kind of dialogue, I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. That my kind of viewpoint, from, from my perspective as a comedian, meeting the viewpoint of these academics and sociologists, that to me seemed like, oh, if I could write a book that captured that tone, it would be very interesting. And I, I was genuinely curious about a lot of this stuff. I felt like I knew a fair amount about this topic. We've written about it some... But um, I feel like by going really deep into a relatively narrow topic, you came up with stuff that was just, even if you know a little bit of the literature, it was really interesting. The this, this stuff about how so many people, you know, 50 or 100 years ago basically used to marry our neighbors. There's that one graph you have that shows, like, proximity of, um, you know, mate. Yeah, are you referring to the propinquity studies? <laughs> I believe I am preferring to the propinquity. Isn't propinquity density? This is proximity study. Well, that was a real kind of uh, um, shocker to me. Just, just the idea that, like, oh, this the basic concept of like trying to find someone has changed. You know, uh, that that study uh, is from from the '30s in Philadelphia, and it it was like, yeah, one out of twelve people married someone in the same building. Eighty uh, some percent, it was the same city. Um, one out of three, it was like within a five block radius. Um, and it was really startling. And, and you just think about it now. It's like no one marries someone from the same city. You like meet people throughout your whole life like that are from different parts of the world and you go to college. And, and that change was something that was, it was actually a bigger change than the technology or anything. Just, just this just overall change in uh, what, what used to be called a, uh, the companionate marriage to the soulmate marriage. You know, the companionate marriage is pretty close to an arranged marriage. And whenever I tell people my parents had arranged marriage, they're like, wow, that sounds crazy. It's like, well, if you look at the, the history in the United States, even like back in the day, like it, it, you know, someone was like, well, this, you know, this guy that lives near me, he's nice and seems like he could provide for me. And uh, 
you know, a lot of the women we spoke to in retirement homes, the, the way they spoke about their lives, they're like, well, what was I going to do? You know, I, I was living with my parents. I couldn't go to school. I couldn't have my own career. I could just get married to this dude and then I could just go on my life and finally become an adult. To me, the craziest statistic in the book, the craziest one that blows my mind the most is in 1967, there was a study they did where they found 76% of women said they would marry someone that they are not romantically in love with. And, you know, now, like, just, just the idea that, like, now we have all these options with what to do with our lives and our goal of, of who we want to find is not like, oh, a decent person to settle down with and start a family with. It's no, we're trying to find the love of our lives. We're trying to find this amazing, elusive thing. That just wasn't a thing people had the luxury to look for. Yeah. So I have to say that in the end, um, you personally sound like a bit more of a traditionalist than a lot of 32-year-olds. And so I guess I want to know, do you think you are? And if so, or I guess even if not... Do you think that was influenced by your own family, especially since you said your parents were the result of an arranged marriage? I am in an interesting generation because I'm 32. So I have one foot in the world of this post-internet world. But I still remember a time where I didn't have a computer and when I made phone calls. And when I was young and had a crush on a girl, I would have to use a phone. So I still kind of remember some of these things. I still remember a world before text messages and all these things. I do think there is a chunk of, of my generation that does romanticize the past, and I'm part of that, I think. You know, I, I, when I go to a bar and I see people all on, their, all on their phones and I'm on my phone, I get bummed out. And I'm like, ah, oh, we wouldn't be doing this. But then it's also like, yeah, but would I even have met up with all these people if I couldn't text them to tell them where to meet up? You know, part of the impetus to write this book was just this frustration of, like, so many relationships kind of playing out on my phone without even get to without even getting to spend time with people in real life and actually have an experience, it was really frustrating. Um, and that kind of makes you kind of uh, long for a simpler time before all this stuff. Yeah. Okay. So let me uh, let me ask you some of our frequently asked questions. That's okay. Sure. So, tell us in sixty seconds or less what you do, what you actually do in a given day. And I'm guessing that your given day is a lot less given than most people's given days. Well, I would say, you know, with the job I have, you are you don't really have an average day because it depends on what you're doing. So right now I'm, uh, I'm, um, I'm editing this television series that I shot for Netflix. So my day now is I'll wake up at, you know, 8.30 or so and uh, shower, and then I come to our offices and I sit in an edit bay and review uh, our cuts of, of episodes of our show. Um, and then, uh, I'll go and when that's done at like six or so, I'll go maybe grab a drink or get some delicious food with my girlfriend, maybe stop at a comedy club, work on some material and then, and then go to bed. Does the show have a name yet? No, it's so hard to, to come up with a name for a show. I don't, I don't have a title for it yet. Do you want to crowdsource it here and now? Well, I don't think they know anything about what it's about, so it's kind of hard to, uh, you, and it's you, hard to kind of surmise it. Do you want to give it, us a 45-second so. description, and we'll, um, we'll come up with a name for you? My kind of silly description of the show is uh, Aziz Ansari plays Dev, uh, a gentleman that loves delicious food and gets into humorous slash thought-provoking situations. <laughs> okay. 
All right. Um, we'll put the listeners to work on it. Um, all right. Let me ask you this. We ask everybody this. So we're not just singling out you because you're in show business. But um, mm-hmm. let's talk about your net worth, which you don't need to name, but you're certainly welcome to, compared to that of your parents when you were, say, 16 years old. So if your parents' net worth was 1x when you were 16, uh-huh. yours today is what x? I don't know. I have no idea how much money they, they had. Um, I don't know. I probably have more. <laughs> well, I mean, they're in Bennettsville, South Carolina. So even if you have a lot of money, like, what are you, what are you really going to do? Are you just going to uh-huh. buy a lot of biscuits? Like, <laughs> there was so much cream-style corn. It was just, it was flowing everywhere. We had a moat made of gravy. It was so much stuff. <laughs> what is one thing you've spent way too much money on but do not regret? Probably just personal comfort. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I work so hard, and I, I work a lot. I don't take a lot of downtime. But when I do, and when I am in a, in a situation where I can kind of be a little more comfortable, I'll spend the money. And I used to be, you know, let's I'll give this example. Like, when I was first touring, like, you know, if there was, like, a connection, or, you know, uh, like, it would be like, do you want to upgrade to first class? I'd be like, no. But then at a certain point, when you start touring a lot, you're, you're traveling a lot. And it's like, well, if I do one extra show, I can just never do a connection. I can always do first class. And then that way, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I'll definitely do that. And that's kind of what I did, like, my second tour. That makes sense. Um, and then you just kind of uh, justify it that way. Coming up after the break, why Aziz Ansari is selective about the work he takes on. Like if I did some like douchey show that I didn't like, I would probably have some douchey fans that I don't like. But since I've done stuff that I'm proud of and respect, the people that come up to me are cool and respect me and uh, I respect them and they're usually cool people. And may I invite you to visit Freakonomics.com when you have a chance. You can find our entire podcast archive there, more than 200 free episodes. You can also find transcripts for each episode and those transcripts also tell you about the music you hear in each episode. You can also click on the donate button on our website to help our producing partner, WNYC, keep making this and other free shows. And you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or elsewhere so that the next episode will hunt you down instead of vice versa. And while you're on iTunes, you can leave a nice review for Freakonomics Radio or a bad one if you're that kind of person. And you can find Freakonomics on Twitter and Facebook as well. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example, combining assertive on-road performance with signature Range Rover refinement and commanding all-terrain capability. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. Range Rover Sport redefines sporting luxury, an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Combining dynamic sporting personality with the peerless refinement you expect, Range Rover Sport communicates power, performance, and agility. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience 
and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by the Active Cash Credit Card. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases. Earn 2% cash rewards on that workout class you want to try and on the foam roller you need afterwards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That hurtful comment your friend made, that frustrating thing your mom does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Therapy is a safe space to share whatever is weighing you down so you can get some relief and find a solution. BetterHelp offers professional, affordable online therapy on a flexible schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Freakonomics today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Freakonomics. I've just asked Aziz Ansari one of our frequently asked questions. It goes like this. What's something that you own that you should probably throw out but never will? Considering that his new book, Modern Romance, is about finding love in the digital age, his answer might surprise you. I've been trying to throw out my email address in, in, a, in a way. Are you like Hotmail or something? No, I had like an email address, like a, a work email address and I would just get so many emails. And then when I started filming my TV show, I just set up a thing that said, like, this email's dead. I'm not checking email. If the world's going to end, you can call me. Or, and I had, like, an assistant on my show. And I was like, you can call her. And, like, she'll tell me what's up and we'll figure it out. And you know what you realize is all that shit people email you about all the time, all day, none of it is important. None of it <laughs> is pressing. And if you just focus on the work you're doing instead of, focusing on it for like two minutes and then getting distracted to answer some question that isn't pressing at all, you do a worse job. So I found that I'm much more focused when I don't have those little questions. And then at the end of the day, I just have someone fill me in on everything or I call someone on the phone and or I call someone in the morning and then I can focus on what I'm doing throughout the day. And it's a much, my head is much clearer when I do that. So I'd, I'd love to just throw out if I could throw out the internet as well, I'd be great. I never read anything. I've never read like all these novels that are like these these beautiful stories that have um, continued to have a resonance with people for so many generations, like beautiful works of art that I could read at any point. But instead, I choose not to read them, and I just read the internet constantly and hear about who said a racial slur or look at a photo of what ludicrous did last weekend you know just useless stuff and it's like <laughs> i read the internet so much i feel like i'm like on page a million of the worst book ever and i just <laughs> won't stop reading it for some reason it's so addictive so it's 
interesting because you sound like a pretty, I mean, you're a pretty disciplined person overall, it sounds like you do a lot of work and you get your work done. Obviously, it sounds like you like your work, so it makes it a little easier to do that. But still, I mean, well, let me ask you this. Do you think that you really wish you didn't read the internet all the time and would read books instead? Or do you think that, you know what, you just like it and you kind of feel guilty about it and so you say that because it sounds like the thing that you want to be true, maybe? Well, I, I, I've thought about this stuff a lot. Here, here's what I'll say. I'll say, like, the times where I haven't read that stuff, the stuff that I normally read on the internet, just nonsense, blogs, or whatever, the next day, I felt like I've missed nothing, you know? Um, I deleted, like, Twitter and Instagram off my phone. I mean, I use them to, like, post stuff, but I don't, um, I don't have them on my phone. Like, I don't have, like, a feed. I don't follow anyone. And I used to read that stuff a lot. And... Now I don't read it. I don't see those pictures, and I don't miss it. And I feel like a lot of people do a lot of this stuff, and if they cut it out, I don't think they'd miss it that much. I really don't. I mean, when I don't check in on those blogs and stuff, if I miss it, I don't go back and, like, like if you don't read your blog for a week, right, do you go back and, like, not your blog in particular, I'm saying, like, a blog that you check, right? If you don't read it for a week, right, and you come back, you don't go back and read Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, because you're not reading it for the information where you're reading it for and this is this is just my personal theories about this stuff what you're reading it for is a hit of this drug called the internet the phone world you just want a hit of it like when you when you scroll down and you see a new blog post you're like ooh that like gets your brain excited it's like oh there's something new and you click it and you read it and you're like ooh but it's garbage it's nothing it's like oh, okay like all right some somebody dropped an n bomb great all right i mean that is kind of a cool story but <laughs> but you're just searching for this new thing like when you look on your facebook feed and you see these pictures it's like none of that shit really matters you just you just want to see a new thing on there and it just gives you something to do like i've sat in my computer i still do it and i go on like facebook or whatever and i'm just like what am I doing? I just, I'm going on a loop with these same four sites for no reason. I'm not genuinely interested. Like here, here's a test. Like, okay, like take like your nightly or morning, like browse of, of, of the internet, right? Uh, Your Facebook feed, Instagram feed, Twitter, whatever. Okay. If someone like every morning was like, Hey, I'm going to print this and give you a bound copy of all the stuff you read. So you don't have to use the internet. You just get a bound copy of it. Would you read that book? No, you'd be like, this book sucks. Like, this is, <laughs> there, there's a link to some article uh, about, you know, a horse and, and uh, that like found its owner somehow. It's not that interesting. I kind of like the story about the horse that found its owner. You know, that does actually sound kind of sweet. You know what? You know, maybe you just need a, a copy of just the animal stuff. <laughs> compiled and then you can just read all those stories about animals that found their owner and then that would be a gripping read that would be an amazing short story collection <laughs> it is, each chapter is broken down by animals dogs cats <laughs> horses reptiles the reptile chapter would be incredible it's like oh there's an iguana that was in arizona that somehow <laughs> got on a flight to minneapolis all right i'd read that well so what you know some people would say like even some economists would say is that well you're You know, your revealed preferences, what you actually do is that, right? And that means that at root that you want it. You write in the book about dating, you know, this whole notion of the paradox of choice. Do you think that's what you're up against now? Do you think that's what your internet, you know, craving is about? It's just so much stuff that potentially might be exciting that you spend a lot of time on crap that isn't at all exciting just by process of elimination? You're making the argument that like, oh, well, if I do enjoy that stuff, I, I, it's revealing that I do actually like it. If I do look at Correct. it, I do like to it. To some right? degree, right. But I would say this. Um, the problem is 
when I take that stuff away, right? Like if I go to dinner and I don't have my phone, I don't miss those moments of looking at my phone. But if I have my phone with me, I want to look at it because it's, it's drug-like. It's, it, you want to check it and just see what's going on. And anytime there's a lull in the conversation, our attention spans are so short, you just have to look at it. But I don't like that I have to look at it. I don't like that I'm that compulsively addicted to checking my phone or the internet. I definitely don't like that. So it's, you know, I found the way to fight this kind of addiction is, is to kind of take the phones or whatever out of the equation, you know, and then you end up being able to kind of resist it. Like, and you forget about it and your mind's at ease for me. Hey, what do you collect, if anything, and why? What do I collect? Um, at a certain point, I started buying some older cameras. Uh, I started buying like these, like older Polaroid cameras and some film cameras. I have a few of those. I don't know a lot about cameras. I'm not like a, uh, like a... Do you shoot with them or you just like to have them? No, I shoot with them. I like taking film pictures. There's, there's something interesting about it. I think you get cooler pictures and it's kind of fun to drop off the roll of film and then you see the photos and, you know, you kind of forgot about it. It's kind of a little... You are such different. an old man. Kind of. At the same time, though, it's, it's weird. Like, I just went on this... Uh, I took my girlfriend on this vacation for her birthday last weekend and I took all these photos of my film camera, and I'm, like, describing these places to a friend of mine, and I'm like, oh, damn, if I took iPhone photos, I could show him those photos. <laughs> I mean, there is a convenience to what we have now. Hey, what's the biggest upside for you of being well-known? The biggest upside of being well-known is that random people are really nice to you all the time. People are inclined to be nice to you. And strangers come up to you and they tell you they appreciate the work that you do. And uh, especially in New York. New York's very cool because in New York, there's way less of people that want photos and just want to just take a photo with you as a celebrity just to post it on social media or whatever. There's way more people just kind of seeing you and they give you a nod or they'll give you a thumbs up. They'll see like, oh, this guy's like with his friends. Like, I'm not going to stop him and... Uh, ask him for a photo or whatever. I'm, I'm just going to give him a little nod or just say like, hey, love your work. And I appreciate that. I think that's really nice. You know, if people ask for a photo, I, I have like a nice way of kind of telling people like, oh, I'd rather not take a photo, but what's your name? Like, thank you so much for watching your work. And I'm genuinely like very appreciative. And, and, and people in New York get that. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a cool thing to just, you know, just see people like giving you positive feedback to, to what you work so hard on all the time. And why do you do that? What's the point of not doing the photo? Well, I would say, like, what happens is, like, you know, when I first was starting to act and stuff, like, I heard about some actor that, like, didn't take photos. And I was like, man, that seems kind of shitty. Like, why not? It's not a big deal. Like, I would take every photo. Cause it was, but it didn't happen that often. But at a certain point, like, if you're walking down the street in New York and you're, like, somewhat recognizable, you get stopped all the time. And you can either take all those photos and then I used to do that, but I started becoming kind of a grumpy person. Like I would, I would do it and I'd be kind of grumpy about doing it. <laughs> like Alec Baldwin grumpy or just a little bit grumpy? No, just like, oh, I know the flash isn't on or like, you know, all right, you know, if things never go, <laughs> it's never like this quick thing that you imagine. Right. And it just keeps, if, and like, again, I hate like, I'm not like complaining about this stuff because I know I'm so lucky in a billion ways. So I'm not complaining about this, but you don't think about like, oh, you're with like your girlfriend and every minute you get stopped and people that stop you when you're with your friends, your girlfriend, they're kind of not rude to them, but they don't treat them like they're real people. And they're like, Hey, take this of us. 
And so they're mean to your other friends sometimes. And your other friends get a little annoyed that like every 30 seconds you have to stop and do this whole thing. And you take one picture on the street and then some people see it and they're like, what's going on over here? And then they come over. And then eventually there's like some tourists who are like, who are you? What are you doing? And you're like, I'm just an actor guy. And these people recognize like, all right, come here. We're getting one. Like, okay. I don't even think you know who I am or what I do, but if you need it. So it becomes this whole thing. So you can either do that or you can have this like real moment with a person where you say, hey, how are you? Like, what's your name? Like, thanks for watching my stuff. Like, and I'm happy to do that. Like, that feels like a real thing to me. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I mean, I was at a comedy club and I saw Louis C.K. do this. And he was just like, hey, like, what's your name or whatever? And he's like, yeah, I just do that. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's great. So then you don't have to be like this grump and like take this weird photo. You can just say hi to someone and if they're cool they'll understand like most people get that you know the other thing is like you know there's some people i know that are are famous to the point where like they don't even walk down the street anymore they're always in like a black car and wherever they go they have they're in a black car and they, and they get down and they don't get to like be like normal people and i don't want to lose that like i want to be able to walk around and be a dude you know and just be a person do you worry though about that Maybe it's not an inevitable paradox, but it's a potential paradox, which is the better you do your work or the more popular you get, at least. There's not necessarily a relationship between how good work is and how popular you get. But, you know, you're a performer, you're an actor, you're a comedian, you're making a, sh a new show for Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, the more exposure you get, the more likely it is you are going to lose the ability to just live a life like that in New York. Do you think about where that border is and do you fear that you might cross it? I think the way I kind of have things planned out, like I'm not going to do anything that is going to get me to that point. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm going to do like the Twilight reboot or something. I've been very careful about what I choose to do. And I only do things that like I really like. So I do things, if you do a show like Parks or you do stand-up, which is just going to be you, like you're going to attract people to your work where people you would probably enjoy meeting or speaking with like if i did some like douchey show that i didn't like i would probably have some douchey fans that i don't like but since i've done stuff that i'm proud of and respect the people that come up to me are cool and respect me and uh i respect them and they're usually cool people that i you know so i think it's about the choices you make and and, and what you do you know it's a really good point so let me ask you this. If you weren't doing what you do now, like any of it, like comedy, TV, movies, none of it, um, what do you think you would have ended up doing? I'd probably be like sad and fat somewhere <laughs> eating a lot of food. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it, it, you know, uh, who knows? I never had any like deep passions that I think I would have gravitated towards. Um, you uh, think you'd be living in New York or back in South Carolina or somewhere in between? I would probably be living in New York, and I think I have a lot of faith in the in the city of New York helping you figure out what you want to do. I mean, that's what helped me figure out I wanted to be a comedian was living in New York. It wasn't about being in NYU or anything. So I would probably live in New York. I, I, I always, when I was in South Carolina, I lived in a very small town, and I always wanted to be somewhere bigger where stuff was happening. And, I, and when I went to New York, it was just so exciting because I could go to concerts and things like that. Like, you know, bands don't come to South Carolina. Like, bands just don't come. If they do, they're like, you know, in Charlotte or something, and it's like a three-hour drive. Maybe it's on a weekend and you can go, you know. So uh, I was just excited to be in a place where things were happening, and the thing that was happening that was exciting to me was, was comedy and doing comedy, and that's what I kind of fell into. But if I didn't, maybe there would have been something else that I was really into. Maybe I would have really gotten into um, that stomp thing and, and bashing uh, trash can lids. <laughs> um, okay, and finally, just tell me something that m almost nobody 
but maybe close friends and family, whatever, know about you. Tell us something that people who are fans just would be really surprised to learn about you. Okay. Um, so I do a thing where at night I brush my teeth by the sink, and in the morning I brush my teeth in the shower, right? And that, That's your thing? That's your distinctive thing? Wait, wait, I haven't finished. Oh, so, okay. here's the thing. Every day <laughs> starts with this moment of, of, uh, of this nuisance of, oh, my toothbrush and my toothpaste by the sink. They're not in the shower. Oh. And I turn on the shower, and so I walk over <laughs> and I grab the toothpaste and the toothbrush, and I come back. Can I make a suggestion for you? Because Wait, I think you're on, doing well still... enough that you could afford it. Is what if you got yeah. two of each and kept one in the shower and one at the sink? Well, here's the thing. I bought another thing of toothpaste, <laughs> but I have yet to purchase the second toothbrush. And I have been trying to remind myself to buy the second toothbrush for about three years. So that's something no one knows about. <laughs> well... Does that mean that your primary toothbrush is three years old, that you're brushing your teeth with a three-year-old toothbrush? No, I just keep forgetting to buy this, this double of the toothbrush. The double. To have two of them, so I have two of them going simultaneously. And, you know, if, maybe, if I, maybe, if I, <laughs> maybe if the show goes well and I do another big tour, <laughs> I, can, I can kind of save up the $4 to buy that other toothbrush. I would like to think. <laughs> Let me say this to you. Aziz Ansari may... That be the gravest problem you have to fight in your life. Yeah, it's a really tough life. There's that, the whole trying to stay off the internet thing and uh, people wanting pictures. It's, I'm a real, it's a real, it's a real love, rough life I've created for myself. No, it's all great. Yeah, thank you very much for the time. Listen, um, really, congratulations on the book. It's just fantastic that it's good and that it's popular. And um, I wish you all the best with it and with all your other stuff. Oh, well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I'm a big fan, and uh, I'm excited I was able to come on. Okay, great. Catch you later. Bye-bye. All right, bye. I hope you enjoyed today's blast from the past. We're working on a ton of new episodes, one of which we need your help for. If you have any stories about how Freakonomics Radio changed the way you think or make decisions, maybe even some problem you've solved or some enemy you've defeated, let us know. Would you drop us a line at radio at Freakonomics.com? Thanks. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC Studios and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Kasia Mihailovich and Susie Lechtenberg. Our staff also includes Irva Gunja, Jay Cowett, Merritt Jacob, Christopher Wirth, Greg Rosalski, Caitlin Pierce, Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, and Jolenta Greenberg. Harry Huggins is our intern. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please come visit Freakonomics.com, where you'll find our entire podcast archive, as well as a complete transcript of every episode we've ever made, along with music credits and lots more. Thanks for listening. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean... Every time. Because messes happen. Because... 
Yeah, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. 